Hey everyone, welcome to Brown Breakdown. I'm your host, Apoorva Gandetti. Every episode, I get to sit down with South Asian artists of all types at all different levels of their careers to understand the tools necessary to build a life as an artist. We'll be talking about everything from turning a hobby into a career, obstacles along the way, breaking tired stereotypes, and changing the media landscape to be more inclusive. My guest today is actor and writer Priya Mohanty. Priya grew up in India and came to the U.S. in 2008 to get her MBA at Duke University. While Priya was working in her corporate job, a series of fortunate events led her to a free acting workshop where she was bitten by the proverbial acting bug. Since then, Priya has been working in plays, TV, films, and voiceover. If you've ever called PayPal India, you'll likely hear her voice. Some of her notable stage credits include the Jeff-nominated world premiere of Queen at Victory Gardens, for which she earned a Broadway World nomination for Best Actress. Jeff recommended Pillars of the Community at Straw Dog Theatre and the critically acclaimed Gender Breakdown at Collaboraction. Priya was also a founding member of the Chicago-based theater company Chimera Ensemble, as well as a founding organizing member of Chicago Theater Access Auditions, which enables non-union actors access to Chicago union theaters. Some of her on-camera credits include Chicago Med, Next, the critically acclaimed short film Prayer for the Childless, and Haven web series. Seeing a dearth of immigrant representation in media, Priya also expanded to writing to showcase the immigrant experience. Her first project as a writer was for the pilot Phobia, spelled F-O-B-I-A, like fresh off the boat, which she also starred in. Phobia met with much critical acclaim and audience acclaim. She is currently working on developing the first season of Phobia as well as several short film projects. Here's what she had to say. Hi Priya, welcome to Brown Breakdown. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for making the time. I hope your toddler is doing okay. She's all right. She had uh, something called roseola, which um, sounds like a nipple rash, but it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) It's like this uh, thing toddlers get, I guess. So she had like fever and then she had like uh, rashes all over her body, but she's doing fine. Oh, good. All of that was good, but it was just the, she found this new way to screech cry, where she's crying and screeching at the same time. That was not fun. So. Oh, wow. So if we hear anything, we'll know it's her screech crying. Screech crying, crying out the screech cry. Yep. Awesome. Finding her voice, like we're all trying to do in life, I guess. I know. Maybe she has a better idea of her POV than I do. So that's really impressive. (laughs) I'm super excited to talk to you, though. I feel kind of like if Claire Foy were to meet the queen because you originated the role that I played for my Black Box showcase. So I feel like I'm meeting like the OG. Well, thank you. That's a very flattering comparison. But I will take it. But ironically, like the play was also called Queen. So... There you go. Exactly. Yeah, I definitely want to talk more about Queen and about your time in theater in Chicago, but I would love to learn more about your background. So you grew up in India, Mm -hmm. and I'm really excited to hear your perspective because, I mean, we've only had two guests so far, but myself and my previous two guests, all of us grew up mostly outside of India or in the U.S., Mm -hmm. so I'm really excited to hear your perspective as someone who moved here a little bit later in life. Yeah, I came to America in 2008 to go to business school. I went to Duke. I got my MBA. I, you know, had a corporate job. And then at that point of time, when I was I was in Chicago doing my corporate job, uh, I was in a long distance with my then boyfriend, now husband. And so I had a lot of my weekends free. I was hanging out with this friend and uh, I happened to mention to her about about how I used to dance as a kid. Mm -hmm. And she told me that she used to act. And I was like, yeah, what's the big deal with acting? Like anyone can act, right? (laughs) Anyone can do it. Anyone can do it. And she was very offended. And she was like, well, if you think you can do it, why don't you like try to... So she kind of like dared me to take this acting workshop that was free And I signed up for it and shockingly enough, I found out that acting is not as easy as everyone makes it seem. True. Uh, It's so not easy. But I also found myself really, really enjoying it and loving it. I was enjoying the challenge. And then I started taking a couple of more classes and the way I was justifying it was like, oh, it's going to help me in my corporate career because I'll be a more confident presenter and you know, I'll be more confident um, in front of people, in front of a crowd. Yeah. But the more I did it, the more I loved it till I finally reached a point where I was like, I I really want to try doing this. So I came in one of in one of the acting classes, I came across this uh, poster for a play being 
done by Rasika Theatre, which yeah. turned out to be, I think, right now, even now, it's probably the only South Asian theatre in the Midwest, I want to say. And I was like, oh, I should reach out to them. And I did. And I reached out to them for like a year on their Facebook page. I kept like bugging them. I was like, I have no experience, but can you just like give me an audition? Can you give me a chance? And then like a whole year later, they finally called me in for an audition. It was funny because they forgot to send me the sides. Oh my gosh. Or the script. Uh, and, funny, and you wouldn't know because it was your first audition. I had, I had no idea what, what to expect. I just, you know, I was like, oh, maybe they'll just give me something to read over there. Uh, funnily enough, that play was actually A Nice Indian Boy, which is uh, one of Madhuri Shekhar's play, the same playwright. Right. So yeah, anyways, I went in for that audition and they were like, oh, so which side do you want to do? I was like, I don't know what that means. What do you mean by side? Which what side that- of my body? <laughs> yeah, what, what does that mean? So anyways, I just I just did a cold read. Um, I didn't book the role, but they did take me on as an understudy. So that was my first like acting experience. And then where was this? Where was the original workshop that you took? So it was this uh, studio, which is now shut down. I think it was Act One. Um, Act One Studio Chicago. Um, but then it was, I, I want to say it was like almost six months to a year after that, that I took my first real acting class. And that was at Acting Studio Chicago. Gotcha. And then after I did my first like acting gig, which was the understudy for A Nice Indian Boy, one of my other under, understudies, she was auditioning for the school at Steppenwolf at the time. And I had absolutely no idea about theater at all. So I had no idea what oh Steppenwolf was. And I was like, yeah, cool. I'm just going to apply, right? Like <laughs> with no experience. Worst experience, apply, apply to school at Steppenwolf. I love that. Just do it. I, I feel like, there is there is uh, definitely some power to ignorance in believing that you can just go and do it uh, because you don't have a frame of reference for right. what things are. So I made it this, to the final rounds, but I didn't I didn't make it to the final cut. But they sent me a very sweet email saying that you have something and you should continue working at it. And by the way, there was uh, at your at your audition there were a couple of instructors from Black Box, and you, you should consider applying to them. They're a great program, and uh, I think they'd love to have you. And so then that's what kind of led me to Black Box Academy and applying for the academy program. And uh, I applied. I got through. And at that point of time, I quit my job for a couple of uh, logistical reasons, primarily being that because I was on a work visa um, and this was a full-time program, I was like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna quit my job and do this program. And then I'll probably look for a corporate job after that. So how did you make the visa work in the interim? Because did you just then have a student visa for black box? No, I didn't need a student visa because it's not like a you know degree per se. So I just switched to a dependent visa um, because my husband also, I mean, we were married by then. So my husband also had an H-1B. I switched to a dependent visa and then I did my black box program. And thankfully at the time, it so happened that Obama was passing an executive order, which allowed those dependents, those people on dependent visas to start working. Because up until then, if you were on a dependent visa, you couldn't work at all. That was actually the same way that my mom was able to start working. When we first moved here, we moved here in 2007. And so my whole family, Mm -hmm. like my mom and my brother and sister, we were all on a dependent visa with my dad. And I think it must have been around that same time that that order was passed because it was like four. It was 2015. Yeah, so 2015 is was when the executive order was passed. And so that's what allowed me to start acting because with my work visa, I wouldn't be um, allowed to act. I wouldn't be allowed to earn money through any other means than my corporate job, right? So um, I was like, okay, I mean, since this is happening, I'm just going to see how this goes. Thanks, um, Obama. Thanks, Obama, yeah. So we both did Black Box, which is how I got in touch with you. When you started your classes at Black Box at the Academy, did you have an idea of what you were getting yourself into in terms of the training? I had no idea. No, I had no idea. But then also, again, you know, the power of ignorance, because I was coming into it with a complete clean slate, not having any idea about um like I had no no reference framework right I had no idea anyways like what what I was going into so I didn't have any preconceived notions about what it needed to be 
which I think was great in a lot of ways because I just like went in blind and uh... I went into my first studio class totally blind too because I signed up because a friend of mine had taken an on-camera class there I didn't know about the academy didn't know didn't even know that they did Meisner didn't know what Meisner was yeah so I started my first studio class and they were like yeah so we don't work with dialogue until um you know like 10 weeks from now and I just sort of like jumped right in and had a great time and then from there went into the academy so when I started the academy I had an idea but when I first got to black box no idea yeah that can be a fun ride black box the academy especially is obviously infinitely more intense and it can be very very taxing (laughs) Uh, I remember I remember those first few weeks I would like you know be doing my homework and my investment work and everything and every day my husband would come back to find me like in a corner sitting and crying and he's like what happened today I was like you died again (laughs) (laughs) so uh it was really intense Uh, it really puts your loved ones through it too (laughs) yeah it's it's very very intense for sure but I think uh, it also, it really like scrubs you down and leaves you bare and very, very vulnerable. And it, it makes you do the work, you know, it makes you like, um, just like leave everything yeah. out there. So so now that it's yeah. been uh, you, five years, you said five years since you graduated from the academy, are there parts of the process that you feel like you have kept with you and still really use to this day? Or do you think you've sort of adapted your pro- your acting process since then to you know, use maybe like the accepting and investing, but not the entire black box method that they teach us? I've definitely adapted it based on what I do and what I'm doing. I I find I use a little bit, bit more of it when I'm doing theater work as opposed to like on-camera work. But I think the, the basic foundations and kernels of truth, which yeah. is a term that they love to use there, I think I still kind of use them. Honestly, I use the basic philosophy of black box even in my life. Like when when I was pregnant with my toddler, with, with Summer, that's kind of what, like the whole idea of like you do all your homework and your investment ahead of time so that when you're on the stage, your body is free to just kind of follow its instinct uh, and you know what to do. So that, that idea is kind of what I also do in yeah. my life. So... So when I was pregnant, I was like obsessively like reading up about everything and doing all this research and doing all the homework because because um, my <laughs> my philosophy was that when the time came, that's that's what would inform my instinct. It would allow me to follow my instincts more freely. That's so cool. So like instead of once you have your baby and in the moment you need to know exactly what to do rather than like going to look for the answer, you've sort of like filled it into your head and can trust your gut. I feel like instinct does need to be informed a little right. bit by knowledge and a little bit by by some wisdom. I can't just like grab something out of the air if I have absolutely no knowledge about it Uh, at least I cannot like I I know they talk a lot about the whole maternal instinct that's supposed to magically be there I am not one of those moms with a magical maternal instinct I do not have that I think it's a myth I I am really beginning to believe that because I'm like how do you know like I have no idea half the time why she's crying why my baby is crying I'm like I don't I don't know what's going on there I cannot read your mind what's up she doesn't make sense (laughs) so so yeah I I I do use it I definitely you know the the four boxes that they talked about I use that especially in the case of I actually use it even for even for on camera I think the only reason I might not have used it as much in on camera is because while you're in Chicago you're mostly auditioning for like a lot of day player roles (laughs) and so your job is not really to come in with this finely nuanced performance of like what are you what are my stakes for this one line where I have to say oh thank you I'm sorry like you know if that's my line it it gets difficult to build like oh what's my moment before and what's my what, what are my stakes and it just nobody cares like you are there to serve the other players in the room I had this exact same problem. I don't know if when you did the program, did you have an on-camera section of we did. the Academy? Okay. We did, but the scenes we did in that were at least, like I, I remember I had a scene from Parent Parenthood. Is that the show? Parenthood, yeah. And it was, you know, the mom finding out that her son is on the, spe- on the spectrum. So so that's, that, that's a scene, right? 
but we also i remembered having uh, like a, having day player scenes and and all of that is is valid like you still need your investment and everything if you're like a paramedic or if you're like you know a firefighter or whatever you, you still need your investment but it's just much much harder to to do and a lot of the times you don't even get the entire script right right so, so it becomes a little harder to kind of do your homework and like oh who is this person and what are their stakes and what do they want to do and the one-liner roles are so hard. I was just watching this. Hard, yeah. Yeah, this like casting workshop yesterday and they were talking about how that's one of the hardest auditions to go into and when we were doing the day player stuff in the academy, I remember asking my teacher James Lee, I was like, "Should I have a really intense moment before or something to inform this scene? I don't I was so confused." And he was like, "I mean, have a moment before, but like no one really needs to know it." And <laughs> I remember we had this really funny moment where one of my classmates was like, Aporva, do not make your moment before that you just got an abortion because it was something that I did earlier for a different scene. And it just cracks me up every time when I go to do a day player scene that I'm like, do not pick something intense for your moment before. Yeah, I mean, it's typical. Like my my first ever uh, day player role was on Chicago Med. And literally I had one line, which was, oh no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that exact line it was it was exactly that I dropped something and I'm like oh no thank you <laughs> and that was it right and and you did it perfect <laughs> every time and so it's just it's just interesting to kind of do those with very minimal knowledge of what's happening in the world around you which I guess in some ways is fine because you don't need to know like like literally in the in that world I'm a patient who's just passing by I don't need to know what's happening in the in the um, OT or, you know, whatever. During your time in Black Box, were you still auditioning for plays while you were doing the Academy? Or what kind of happened after the Academy that helped your your career progress? I don't think I was auditioning uh, while I was at Black Box because it was, it was pretty intense. And I feel like I remember them saying that it would be difficult to, like, do something while you're in the program just because things can get so intense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't believe I was auditioning that time. I think I only started auditioning after I graduated from the program. And some of it was also, again, me not knowing. Like, I wouldn't have known where to go, what what to look for. Like, I didn't even know what theaterinchicago.com was. I was like, like, I had no idea how the process worked. So it wasn't until... Like I graduated and then got an agent through the Academy Showcase that I, and then obviously I did some work after that. And then I started going for more plays and understanding the scene a little bit more. I, I remember like whenever I would go for plays, I would obsessively read the bios of all the actors in there to understand that, you know, what was the path that they took. Yeah. Get where they are. So it, it's only, yeah, it took me like a while to just get a grasp of the world of like, uh, who are the major players? Who are the major theater companies? How does the audition process work? How do you get an audition? How do you apply for an audition? Uh, who are the casting directors? And I'm like, I, I had no idea, right? So uh, that took me, and oh, and also at that point of time, I couldn't have because I was applying for that that work permit Mm-hmm. that I was getting through the Obama executive order and that wasn't coming through. So um, I had to wait for that anyways. So uh, I think it wasn't until like Jan after I graduated that I got my work permit and I was able to start working. Oh, okay. Got it. When, so yeah. when do you feel like you started to really get a good understanding of how things work in Chicago and then you were able to, you know, start putting yourself out there in terms of applying to agents or going on auditions for theater when do you feel like that was? I don't I don't remember a specific aha moment. It was obviously very incremental. And I think a lot of it was also just going out and watching a lot of plays and meeting people at plays. And then, you know, coming back and looking up the theater company that you saw this amazing play at, who is their casting director, sending them an email and saying that, oh, you know, I just graduated from the academy and here's my resume and uh, there's a, there's a lot of like hustle in our field as you know so yeah um it was definitely a lot of that i actually did not go to many generals do you feel like your business background helped you a lot in terms of the networking parts of acting because i feel like sometimes when you come f- i i come from like a mix of i did like some business stuff in college but then also some like 
art stuff. So I feel like I got an understanding of how to network through like LinkedIn and sending my people my resume. But I did find that when I started taking improv classes or uh, acting classes that that wasn't as talked about. And people who had a background in business in some way had a little bit more dexterity with how to go about that. Yeah, I actually hate networking. Yeah. (laughs) When I uh, quit my corporate job, I was like, yes, I can finally say goodbye to networking. Which was was silly. So silly because turns out uh, there was so much more networking involved in our line of work. So much more. And it's not something I naturally gravitate to or I uh, enjoy. I enjoy meeting people. I'm actually doing an entire episode in Phobia for the season of Phobia around networking because I feel like Indian immigrants and maybe a lot of other Asian immigrants actually struggle with the whole networking aspect of the American work life. Totally. Don't think it's something that comes... I remember distinctly, and this is actually like in the script uh, for this episode, but I have such vivid memories during networking nights of like all the Americans like mingling and schmoozing and small talk and all of that and all the Indian people would be in a corner nibbling on cheese and sipping on wine. So so it's not something that comes naturally to me. I think just because like I enjoy talking to people but it makes it, it it's a little weird for me to be doing small talk when you know why I'm there and I know why I'm there and so like can we like dispense with the small talk and just like you know talk about get straight to it so that networking is not something that I uh, I'm good with but in terms of just networking in terms of like going out and watching plays and then meeting people after that and like you know truly being invested in their work right I think that's what it's all about because I think it's a fallacy and a lot of people outside of the industry don't realize that I think a lot of us are in this field because we really love doing what we do. Um, And it's not because of fame or money, because if you're truly in the field, you know how how not in your control that is. Right. That can be pretty much out. Like a lot of my um, non-industry friends are always shocked when I tell them there are plenty of actors that I know who don't want to be famous. They just want to like stay in Chicago and continue to do good work, right? But anyway, so so that's so that's that's what it is. Like it's it's about the fact that you love the craft and you love the work. And when you go, you watch plays and you let people know how much you appreciate their work, what you appreciate appreciate about it, what is everyone doing, having like discussing and ideas and just it's just a lot of that, I think. Mm-hmm. In terms of like the brass tacks, I do agree with you. I feel like maybe there isn't as much emphasis in teaching some of these things in schools. When I did finally get into, get into the school at Steppenwolf, we actually had one class with cast with the casting director, with JC Clements over there. And I distinctly remember him saying that, yeah, it, it's not, it's not important, like how much you, you know, how much you network, you know, uh, we're like, oh, okay, good. That's good. He's like, it's, it's, who you network with and who you know. Ah, uh, <laughs> so there was a second part to that. <laughs> So basically, he was trying to emphasize the fact that, yes, it is important to kind of be out there and talk to people and just, you know, mingle, which obviously in the past one year has been a little more challenging. And I'm sure we're going to find new ways to to, to do the same thing. And I, re- I remember like actually bringing this up uh, with him at the time because I told him that, hey, I'm, I'm married and whatever time I have, I'd like to spend with my family. Um, so it becomes a little more challenging for me to like always be out there and go for drinks with people. It's just, you know, I am in a different stage of life. I started acting much later in life than a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And and he was like, yeah, but, you know, it, it doesn't always have to be a drink or anything. There are other ways you can do it. It can be an email. It can be a, hey, can I like call you up and chat chat with you about, you know, this this awesome work that you did? And would you mind talking to me about that? And so there are different avenues of doing that, obviously. But I, yeah, I, I do think, unfortunately, and as it's important both in the theater world and even in on camera. Like as I'm getting into more into filmmaking and writing and hopefully directing, it's it's. Oof, I cannot tell you how important it is. <laughs> Just like getting out there and talking to people, which again is is even more challenging now that I have a baby in the mix. Right. I mean, I did the academy during the pandemic, so I feel like I wish I could have gone and seen plays during it, and like yeah. you know, gone with my ensemble and watched after. So it's definitely been interesting to do all of that post graduation stuff online. 
But that's really helpful advice that it's not like you need to meet every single person ever who's doing filmmaking or acting. It's just about finding the most helpful connections and like most fruitful ones. Yeah. And I think honestly, some of it is just about, um, I think that box in your work, you talk about a lot about being open and keeping yourself open. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true even in the relationships we build, right? Like being open and being generous and like you like somebody's work, send them a note, let them know how much you loved it. Um, And that's something that's so cool about Chicago too, is that the community is so supportive and from friends who I've talked to who are in, in LA or New York, there is some of that, but it's not the same kind of like, everyone is so excited when someone from Chicago succeeds. Yeah. And yeah. I really enjoy that. But now you're in Toronto. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel like the acting community in Toronto has been different from Chicago? Honestly, I have no idea because we moved here in January last year with, and my baby was nine months old at that point of time. And uh, by the time we got some kind of like childcare situation in place for me to start focusing on my work, the pandemic hit and everything shut down. So uh, honestly, I have no idea what, what the scene is like. I have heard that Toronto has a pretty active production scene. There are lots of American shows that are shot here. Yes, I learned that a lot of things that are technically supposed to be in New York are shot in Toronto. Yeah, Chicago as well sometimes. Really? Also like subs for Chicago sometimes, yeah. Because they have a lot of tax breaks. I think the overall things are cheaper for uh, for them to shoot over here. So they do shoot a lot of things over here. So I, I assume there's probably a lot of like day player kind of roles. But my toddler just started daycare two weeks ago. And half the time she's been at home sick because that's just how it goes with toddler jumps. But yeah, that my, my plan was to like focus in getting an agent so I could actually go out there and see what it is. I will say from whatever I have noticed and seen, uh, Toronto actually is a little behind the US in terms of diversity and representation. Really? Yeah, it has some work to do over there. That's so interesting because I'm thinking of shows like Schitt's Creek or Kim's Convenience and so many... Uh, South Asian or Indian actors are from Canada and then do work in the U.S. They Yes, they, that's the thing. They all go to the U.S. Everyone right. goes to the U.S. And Schitt's Creek was great for LGBTQ representation. It didn't have as many people of color. And obviously not Kim's true. Convenience is is a one-off. It's not it's not the regular thing. Yeah. Uh, but, but it seems to be something that they're aware of and actively working towards. I do see a lot of government-funded support of like grants and fellowships etc for filmmakers to develop their works so that seems exciting and I'm excited to kind of delve into that because uh, because one of the reasons we came over here is just like immigration related reasons it's uh, it's very complicated in the U.S. Uh, yeah. So we came here because it was a little easier for us to get a permanent residency. And that also means that because of that, I can apply for some of those grants and workshops. And, I mean, sorry, fellowships, etc. So I'm excited to explore that. I'm explore, excited to explore the market and see how it is. It's definitely a smaller market than the U.S. for sure, overall. Right. Because, for example, if you're thinking about it as a writer, which is what I'm doing a lot of these days, there aren't many writers' rooms in in, in Canada. Uh, yes, a lot of U.S. shows are shot over here, but the writers' rooms are mostly based in L.A., right? So they oh, write over yeah. there and then they cast the main roles and the regulars and all of that in um, L.A., New York, in the U.S., basically, and then <clears throat> come to Toronto. Are you still working with your Chicago agents or you're sort of transitioning to, hopefully after the pandemic, to be totally based in Toronto? I don't know yet. We yeah. don't know. I think that's that's one of the things with the immigrant life is that there is so much lack of stability. You don't know where you're going to be, how long you're going to be there. So we, we I, have, I have no idea what the next two years look like for us. Taking it a couple months at a time. That's what we got to do because it, it's kind of frustrating to be really honest because I just, I've been, I've been on so many like Zoom webinars and calls over the past one year during the pandemic, listening in on panels about filmmaking and writing and everything. And there's so much talk about, oh, you should be in LA and you should go to, I'm like, you know, I, as an immigrant, it is really not that easy for me to just up and leave. Just go. Priya, just go to LA. <laughs> yeah, because like, you know, because our visas are tied to our jobs, our jobs are tied to a particular location. And it's just, it's, it's complicated. It's just much more challenging. And, and I, 
that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm developing phobias, because I don't think people understand the, the degree of the challenges and the kind of challenges that immigrants go through in, in trying to pursue your dream. And that's the irony of it all, right? You come to America, the land of dreams and opportunities, only to find that you have like so many visa hurdles and other obstacles in your way that doesn't actually let you get there. So I always found it interesting when I moved here and, you know, we moved around for my dad's job. And I found that all of my friends as I was getting older would always talk about like, oh, when I grow up, I want to live in Germany and I want to live in South Africa. And I was just like, do you guys have any understanding of how hard that actually is to do that? And it's, I mean, I've been very lucky that it was my parents who did the bulk of that, but I just had to deal with the moving from continent to continent. Right. But I think there's a general lack of awareness of just how difficult it is to really be mobile between countries. Yeah. Unless you're just going for a vacation. Yeah. But you brought up phobia and I'm so excited to talk to you about phobia. So obviously, you know, there's so many frustrations that come with immigrating to a new country, not only like cultural differences, but also just the logistics of it. What was there something that sparked in you that was like, you know what, I need to write about this. I think, frankly, a lot of my frustration came from the way I felt in our industry, which was constantly an outsider. Mm-hmm. And I I was just really tired of that. You know, like my my accent was like always such a big deal. I remember when I was thinking about quitting my job and starting acting, I went to this diversity panel which had a really, really big casting director from Chicago on it and a couple of other key players from the Chicago theater scene as well on there. And there was a there was a great discussion about like how do we challenge the the perception of the protagonist always being a straight white man. And I don't know if you know Bezad, Bezad Dabu. I yes. Yeah. So Bezad was on the panel and he was like, you know, why do I always gotta play the Muslim guy? I'm not even Muslim. Why can't I just be American? And um, Isaac Gomez was on the panel, you know, great people on the panel, and they had a great discussion about it. And during the Q&A section, I raised my hand and I was like, I love that we're having these discussions. But I'd also say that, you know, I, I, if we are trying to reflect the world as it is, or America the, the way it truly is, or Chicago the way it truly it is, people like me also exist in that world. And I would love to kind of be a part of that world. Like, why can't I be like the best friend or... Why can't I be the roommate? And I wasn't even being audacious enough to say like lead. I was just being like, can I be in the universe? And this casting director goes, well, yeah, but 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 your but your accent takes people out of the universe. <gasps> and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, are you are you are you trying to say that people like me don't exist in that world? I don't. And so Isaac then spoke up and he's like, I think that's exactly what she's trying to say, though, is that why, why, why can't we have that? And so that's come up in my in my experience repeatedly. And it's been really, really frustrating. Hey, look, I started acting when I was 31. OK, it is way harder for me to like try and get an American accent at the age of 31 than it is for like a like a 20 year old. Mm-hmm. That's just that's just how it is. I can do British accents, but I cannot do American accents. And some of it is also probably my mind secretly rebelling because I, in my corporate job, I cannot tell you the number of times I would have these. I worked in Sears, which has a lot of like older white men because it was such an old company. The number of time I'd have like these older white men come up to me to correct my English. Uh goodness yeah it was it was very frustrating so yeah that was that was how my experience began and I feel like that's something that has come up again and again and and I felt and as and and I feel like you know understanding that obviously the Indian American experience is very different from the Indian immigrant experience and there weren't too many immigrants in the Chicago theater scene right so I felt like I was a lone voice and sometimes it gets very tiring when you're the only voice constantly trying to champion for yourself. Yeah. It gets very tiring. And even the shows that do deal with immigrant experience are usually about first generation immigrants. Mm-hmm. Like they were born here and so they're dealing with very different problems than when you first really move on your own. Exactly. You kind of hit the nail on the head because that's exactly where Phobia was born from. Because some of it was was the frustration of <laughs> not seeing my story represented, 
or not not feeling like I had a space in the world. Like I constantly felt like an outsider. I constantly felt that I didn't have a place in this world that was being built. And it was really frustrating. And I had, find, I had to finally come to a point where I said, you know, screw that. I just got to make my own space and I'm not going to wait for permission for that. Phobia was born out of equal parts defiance and love. <laughs> defiance for the way things were and love for love of telling the stories of the immigrant community and so that's what I wanted to do and like you like you said I I, I did see a lot of like not a lot we have a long way <laughs> like four but a, few, <laughs> yeah, a few stories of like immigrant descendant kids but I was like I don't know if people understand what the complete fresh off the boat experience is I don't think you understand what that means to a person and also, like, so often when we do come across immigrant experiences like that, they're always through the lens of trauma and suffering, yes. right? And I feel like that is also, it sometimes also can, if even if inadvertently, it can sometimes also become a way of dehumanizing a group of people if all you can view them as is subjects of trauma. Yes. And so I wanted to do something to kind of highlight the challenges that immigrants go through, but also humanize them. And also know that we're, we're not that different, you and I, honestly. Like, I still want to go get a drink before my first day of class and hang out with my yeah. friends. The the experience of being really awkward and clumsy and, you know, embarrassed in front of a guy you like or a person you like is, is a very universal thing. It's not an exclusively American experience. So, yeah, that's kind of how phobia was born. How did you go about developing the different characters? So you're, of course, the lead, Kay. Well, Kanika, right, is her phone, yeah. And um, then you have your best friend, Bina. And also, I wanted to say I really appreciated that in the pilot, you spoke about the distinction between Kay being high society Indian and then Bina from being from a different background where she didn't have the support from her parents. And I really appreciated that that was talked about, too, because I think a lot of the times from the American lens, the only like context is Slumdog Millionaire. So everyone just assumes that everyone's like living in the gutter or something. But there are different distinctions between like, you know, what kind of immigrant you are even coming to the U.S. That was uh, thank you for catching on to that, because that was absolutely the intention behind it. I wanted to have two South Asian people because I feel like there is a tendency to homogenize the immigrant experience, which is so funny to me. It's funny, right? Because like when you're living in India, like growing up mm -hmm. in India, it's not, I never thought about like what the world thinks of us and what is the perception they have of us, which is again, very true of Americans. I don't think Americans realize what the world thinks of them. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but it was so it was very strange to me when I first came and there would be all these interesting questions like oh my god your English is so good it's like most people speak English actually a lot of the times yeah and you know and even if they don't like don't jump to the conclusion that that we don't um, in fact in the industry I've um, some I've had like an instructor at some point tell me something like while giving me feedback she was like well because English is not your first language and I stopped her there I was like actually it is English is my first language it's the language I grew up speaking it's the language I'm most comfortable with I just happen to sound different but it is my first language and right. she was immediately very apologetic but but it's interesting to me because the whole and again sorry circling back to the accent thing yeah. I feel like there's an there's an interesting a subtle racism when it comes to accents because uh, the way we perceive accents that are from white dominant cultures versus um, you know non-white cultures is very different no matter and like and it's frustrating because I've grown up with English all my life but the moment I make one mistake I am very aware of it because I feel like I, my entire nation is being judged on their ability to speak in another language in, in this language because of because of my mistake and it's I'm like and then I have to like tell myself that okay that's not on me that's on on them yes oh so my gosh them. I could not be like nodding my head more because I had such a similar conversation with one of my friends who was like oh my gosh like oh, foreign accents are so cute 
And they were referring to someone in our college who had a French accent. And I was like, you have never called my parents' accent cute. Right. I don't think you would call a lot of Asian, like Asian continent accents cute. It is so frustrating. I know. And, and as someone who speaks an Indian accent in English, it was actually very frustrating to me when I first came. And especially in our industry, like I couldn't understand why a lot of Indian Americans were like, oh, accent, this role requires an accent. And then obviously, because I haven't had the lived experience of growing up as an you know Indian person in America, so I didn't understand the all the all the stigma that they had to face, right? So, and when I did, I was like, oh yeah, okay, now I get it. But then I would also step back and like to remind people that accents in themselves are not bad. I think that's something that's something we need to remember that accents are not bad. Caricaturizations of accents are bad. And that's something we should not be doing irrespective of where the people are from. I am not happy about that. So I absolutely understand. But I feel like we also veered into this territory where we're like, oh, we don't want to hear like the Indian accent anymore. And I'm but I'm like, okay, but that's erasure though, because mm-hmm. because are you saying that we shouldn't tell our stories as immigrants? Like so let's let's find that that line and let's let's find that balance you know this is it's tricky I understand but let's let's find that balance yeah anyways I completely veered off (laughs) (laughs) no it was an important tangent but yes we were talking about Bina Bina. yeah yeah and that that's exactly what I wanted to do is as I wanted to um, I wanted to call out the homogenization of the immigrant experience and understanding that even people from the same city in the same country can be completely different because your your life and experiences have been different so it makes no sense to kind of equate the two right and it's interesting since you mentioned that because I did go through a period where I was pitching phobia to some executives in LA okay one of the executives gave me this feedback he was like but why do you need two of them oh he was like well, we already have the lead. He was, why do you need two of them? And I, I was giving, I had to give him the same explanation that I'm giving. And it's interesting to me because I was like, that would never be a question if there were like two white people in the lead. I don't have, like the show is called Phobia. It's 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 about fresh off the boat immigrants. I don't like. How can I not center the immigrant experience in an immigrant voice? And then also, if you only have one, you run into the problem of not being able to showcase the different perspectives. Because I feel like yeah. one frustration that a lot of my friends have with shows that have one South Asian lead is that you're only getting one story and then it feels like that's everyone's story. Yeah, and I think I think when you are so underrepresented, I think we end up putting so much onus on the few forms of representation we do have because we're so thirsty for it. We're like, I, but I want to see my story reflected as well. But and I and I, that's what happened with Never Have I Ever. Exactly. Yes, that's what I was thinking of. Never Have I Ever was was like that, and I had like a few problems with the show, but also like. You know, also understanding that it was one aspect of the South Asian representation, which might not speak to everyone, but it is also too much to ask for one show to represent like, you know, three million experiences. Yeah, and too much to ask Mindy Kaling to represent every single different person's experience, which is why we need more people and why we need more people like you to write these stories and share them. And the other interesting choice that I really liked in Phobia was that you had moments where you spoke Hindi or referred to Bollywood songs without explaining it. And I loved that. Yeah, that was also deliberate. And it was interesting because after we first premiered the pilot, some people did come up to me and tell me that we didn't actually need to know what the song meant. Like, your joy in it was enough. Like, we get it. We understand it, right? And some of it was also because I, I wanted to, like, create conversation. Go ask your South Asian friend what MCBC means. Ask them what Mother Cho Dan Cho means. Ask them. You know, so uh, yeah, yeah I, I didn't I didn't feel the need to explain that. That's just that's just the world we live in. So yeah, that's great. I was working on an outline for a pilot and my writing teacher. I and the whole idea was that the like the main character's sister's wedding has three days. And my teacher was like, you need to explain at some point that there's three days in a wedding. And I was like, 
okay, but also can't you just figure it out? Also, like, I feel like that's, that's again, like one of the standard Indian stereotypes that everyone seems to know is that our weddings are so long. It's like three days. Was this your first time writing and producing your own content? Yeah, it was my first time writing anything. And yeah, it was my first time producing anything. Again, like I walked into it completely blind, not knowing what to expect, not knowing the amount of work required. I didn't even know. <laughs> so the ended the 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 pilot that we ended up shooting was based on the second draft of Phobia. Okay. Like I wrote like a draft, like a I want to say in twenty seventeen, I wrote a draft, and then I let it be. I came back to it a year later. I hated it, so I rewrote the entire thing. And then I was like, okay, this is good. Let's just shoot this. Because and it was only like now that I'm like more in the world of writing that I'm like oh that that's not something you should do you should give it a few more drafts before you just decide to go and shoot something I think like one of the one of the best pieces of advice I got I don't know if you know Pooja Mohindra I do know Pooja really well actually so you know before when I was thinking about making something I had reached out to Pooja because she had finished making Geeta's Guide yes. to Moving On. And she very generously decided to talk to me and she like spoke to me for like four hours. We ended up like sitting in a coffee shop for four hours. And and one thing she told told me really stuck with me, which she's like, just go out and make it. She's like, because I feel like as artists, we do tend to be very, very critical of ourselves. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's ever a point where we're like, yes, this is it. This is the best thing it's never gonna get any better that's not gonna happen also maybe not the healthiest thing either it's just not it's not gonna happen and and she's like just do it sooner than later and so i just wanted to make something i just wanted to like you know i wanted to do it i just wanted to i i I just felt like if i kept sitting on it it wouldn't happen that was actually one of my other questions was how did you decide to go straight to shooting it instead of using it as like a writing sample for example because whenever i've talk to people and you that's one of those things where it's like sometimes it's better not to know because Pooja actually was really helpful with the web series that my friend and I were working on that got shut down because of the pandemic but in terms of writing pilots my teachers have always said like you know you should write this as if it's never going to get made because it's not going to get made and you're just using it as a sample for other people so I really like that you just decided like you know what it is going to get made and it's going to get made by me in terms of like how I decided again I didn't know any better (laughs) I just want to love it and I have to say that I think OTV was really really helpful I had reached out to AJ with the first draft which was a really shitty draft as a first draft should be and then finally I reached reached uh, out to him after the second draft I was like you know what do we do next you know what 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 happens like if I want to get this made and he's like, well, you need a producer, you need a director. And he recommended a few names. And at that point of time, I was doing like a small role in this web series called Haven. And that was that was being directed. That episode was being directed by Reshmi, Reshmi Hazarastabaki. She was one of the names that AJ had recommended to me. And I told her that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm trying to develop this thing. Would you be interested in meeting, meeting me and talking to me about it? And so she did. And she's South Asian. Yeah as well so she read the script we met in a coffee shop and she immediately latched on to a lot of the things that I was trying to convey that weren't explicitly in the script and and in my head I was like yeah that's it done I'm not even I didn't even talk to anyone else she was the first person I spoke to I was like yep let's do this and then she was very instrumental in in bringing like a lot of the crew on board because she's had some experience in the Chicago industry so she was very very helpful and she and that's like ended up being one of one of my best partnerships. Not that I've had lots of like film related partnerships, but I I just, I got so lucky with Reshmi. She's also such a gem of a person and she's so wonderful. And she's also like one of my great friends now. So I think that just, just worked out really well. And then OTV was able to hook us up with the producer. Also, it it was a lot of like randomly talking to people. Like I remember I went to, um, I don't know if you know Anubhat. She was an actor in Chicago. I think she's moved to California now, but she was a South Asian actor in Chicago and she was doing a one woman show and I went to watch it. And in that uh, show, I came across Mathura and she was kind of on my radar because she was the only other immigrant South Asian actress I knew in the city. And so I, I literally accosted her after the show. I was like, you're Madhura, right? She's like, what? She was like, uh, You're like, you yeah. want to be in my show right now? That's pretty much how it went. I was like, you know, I, I, I'm i developing the show and I think you'd be great for this role. I, I would really like an immigrant to play it because I don't want to put 
uh, an Indian American person in the position to like put on an accent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you'd be interested. So that's how, that's where I met her. And in the same, in the same show, I was talking to another friend and I was like, uh, yeah, I'm trying to develop the show. And she's like, oh, my husband, you know, he does like commercial productions, like for the corporate world, but he has like gear and everything and he's interested in doing something creative. So that's how we found our first producer. It's just like a lot of like randomly meeting people. And that's what I would recommend is constantly keep talking about your 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 projects. Yeah. Like keep, keep talking about them. Like, oh, this is what I'm doing and you know, I'm looking for help. And you never know where that help comes from. And people want to work. They want to help people who are passionate about their projects. So that's really awesome to hear. And I think it also helps to, like, it was really important for both Reshmi and me. And that's, again, it's awesome that, you know, it was something that both of us had already decided on was that we wanted our crew to be as diverse as well. So it was very important for us to hire as many femmes and as many people of color as possible in the crew and I think what that did is that we ended up having in fact a few immigrants on our on our crew and that meant that they were very excited about the project because they felt that they were being seen in these stories so our editor she who's amazing Magdalena she um, was an immigrant herself so and she was super invested in the project the story of how I find found my colorist was hilarious because we had we were in post-production the editing was done but we were looking for like for a colorist everywhere we just weren't able to find one I was coming back from a networking event some filmmaking networking event and I was in a in a uber uber pool Mm -hmm. I was like what's the shared uber called I forgot the name I know when was the last time we used one Uh, I was in an Uber pool and I was talking to my husband and giving him a lowdown. I was like, yeah, you know, I told these people we need a colorist and I don't know, we need a colorist really soon. And the guy who was in my Uber pool, he's like, um, ex- excuse me, I'm sorry, but I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but I heard that you need a colorist. I'm, I'm actually a colorist. And he was from Puerto Rico. He was this really, really sweet guy. And that's how we found our colorist. And he had just finished working on this Lin-Manuel Miranda documentary. What? But And he, again, was super invested in the story because he, he wanted to see more immigrants on screen as well so that's how we found a colorist so you never know just keep talking like just just talk that is <laughs> so cool just talk to everyone you know I that's so cool yeah and then your phobia premiered in April 2019 April 10th yeah April 10th 2019 five days before my baby was born oh my gosh so yeah, your, I was, your babies were five days apart. I That's exactly what I used to say. It's so funny because I was pregnant throughout the entire thing. We, I found out I was pregnant like during the pre-production phase. I was pregnant through the entire thing. And that's what I used to joke about that I have like two babies in production. Oh my God. Were yeah. you pregnant when you were shooting it too? Yep. Wow. That's yeah. so impressive. So what has the life of Phobia been like since its release? It's been great. We had some really, really phenomenal response. People have loved it. We went to a lot of film festivals, got a lot of like film festival love. I So OTV, the platform that actually released Phobia, they have gotten into representation and production starting this year. So I actually signed with them uh, for representation in December. So through Phobia, because of Phobia. Fingers crossed, but it looks like we should be getting funding for like a first season. That is so exciting. Yeah, it's going to be more web series though. So like 15 minute episodes. I'm aiming for seven more 15 minute episodes. So yeah, it's 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 been great. I've actually finished writing the episodes and I'm really excited about the way they've shaped up. I'm excited to see where this goes. I, I really hope it gets a life. I really hope it gets made and I really hope people see get feel seen. And I think that's the biggest joy of this is people reaching out to me telling me that, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I totally get that. And it's it's not even just, you know, South Asian people or immigrants. I've had like Americans reach out to me saying, you know, that part where Kay is like really defensive when someone says she's attractive. Oh my God, that is like, I really feel that. That was hilarious. Yeah. And I feel like that's my, that's my whole aim is right to form a bridge between different worlds and to understand that there is universality and specificity. The more specific you get with any experience, the more you realize that, you know, it's, it's very universal, truly. Can you give us any insight into what kind of things Kay might get into? Well, you obviously set off a huge story, which is that her teacher is the guy that she kissed 
or didn't kiss. There may or may not be uh, another love interest. Ooh, I don't know. Okay. But I think like uh, the way I've structured the episodes is each episode kind of deals with a different kind of challenge she faces as an immigrant. There is one episode on yoga and cultural appropriation. <gasps> I want to watch that. Just because, like, it's it's interesting because, again, like, growing up in India, you don't, I don't, I didn't really understand what cultural appropriation meant or what it could mean to the people who are growing, like, you know, like you growing up. Like, it, it means, it meant something very different to you, right? When you saw, like, aspects of your culture, uh, when you were, like, derided for it, mm-hmm. and then when other people, like, use it as an aesthetic they're suddenly cool for it it's things that we struggle to understand like growing up in india like it doesn't like i i was like what's what's the big deal but yeah it is a big deal when you're in when you're experiencing it i guess this this chasm sometimes between indian americans and indian immigrants not understanding each other's experiences because those experiences are very different so how do we kind of understand each other a little yeah. better like how can i get indian immigrants to understand that the things that we think are not a big deal could be a very very big deal for a kid who grew up in america constantly feeling like an outsider yes right? i have had these exact conversations before with some of my friends from college who were born and raised in india and then only came to the us for college like when they called me american just american but at the time i actually had an indian passport even though i you know i'd spent most of my life in the us so it was things like that that felt really you know bothered me but actually the other funny thing too is i had talked to one of them about the calling drunk high thing and they said that had happened to them too that actually happened to me when i first came to america. oh really that's based on a true thing nice. like the first time i went to a bar when i was at when i was at duke i went around telling everybody i was so high and people were like who was your supplier what you were like um th- I don't the, the corner store <laughs> i don't understand so just so each episode kind of deals with some of that so there's one episode on appropriation there's one episode on networking love it and then she has all these challenges financial challenges and there's a little bit of a twist in in how we're going to view Kay because yes she's rich but what's her, what's the story behind that as well there's a little bit over there as well so all funny and comedic and hopefully insightful to the people who don't really understand the immigrant experience i hope we can all watch it soon because it just occupies such a different space than anything else really because you have content that's coming straight out of india of course and then you have content that's you know a generation or two later here but there's nothing in that sort of in between space that's what I really hope it gets made and we can watch it soon. Oh my actually my last question is what have become your hobbies since you made acting into a full-time You know it's interesting because I'm realizing that as an artist like I think it's so important to just keep ourselves open to any form of art because you don't know how that will inform and especially since I'm getting into writing right now I literally don't know what aspect of my life or a hobby or something I listen to I can incorporate into into it so during the pandemic I actually started painting I'm not very good at it but it was just something that I I wanted to do something without any pressure of it being good or like having to deliver something that is awesome and great just like do something to ground myself and feel better I started painting um, I started listening to a lot more podcasts I like listen to podcasts a lot a lot of screenwriting ones filmmaking ones but even just like goofy ones like uh, I listen to something called science diction which is about the origin of words I listen to gastropod which is about the history of food yeah it's just a lot of different things and um, I've always been a little bit of like a jack of all trades I'm just leaning into that now because I used to be like, oh, I wish I could just focus and just like get really good at something. But I'm like, yeah, you know what? I I can see this working, like me being interested in a whole host of things and just one day getting really obsessive about like the Mars rover perseverance and how all of that works and fixating on that, that you never know. Maybe I'll write a science fiction someday and that'll help. Who knows? Yeah, you never know. I feel like as a multi-hyphenate, you kind of have to be a jack of all trades in some way. Yeah, so I've just decided to lean into my jack of all tradeness. And I totally feel you on the thing about doing something creative but not having that pressure be there. I really miss that about some of the earlier days of doing improv and acting was that it was really just for fun. 
And now that there is this added pressure, it's there needs to be something else to keep a creative mind creative without the criticism. I think that's something that's something I think for all of us to remember because you know some it, it's not an easy field to be in. The financial pressures are great, the constant rejection, the emotional pressures that come with that constant rejection, the lack of stability, the lack of certainty, and I have such a hard time explaining to my friends who are still in the corporate world. Because they're like, well, that's in every field. I'm like, I, I cannot explain to you that it's not the same. It really isn't the same. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, my worst day doing this is still better than my best day doing anything else. And I think it's important to remember that to keep us going. Like why we're doing this in the first place. It's clearly not for the money. Um, or the stability. It's clearly not for like... A, peace of mind it is because it is it is for for the love of it and i i cannot think of anything worthier honestly right to be able to do something for the pure love of it and i think that's just something to hold on to that's really beautiful and i don't think i can go anywhere from there thank you so much for all of your advice and sharing so much about your journey i really appreciate it and you've given me so much to think about in my own life too and how i even relate to my parents with their experience being different from mine so thank you thank you so much it was nice talking to you. you too and that was the brown breakdown episode three thank you so much to priya for all of her wisdom and inspiration this was such a great reminder for me of why we do what we do and to just go out and make your own stuff and see what happens if you want to watch the phobia pilot you can go to phobiaseries.com f-o-b-i-a series.com and watch it there it's so much fun and if you or anyone you know is interested in being on the podcast, you can reach out to me at Brown Breakdown on Instagram. See you next time.